Welcome to the Vintage Grace Sunday Podcast. We hope our series on the book of Revelation will challenge and encourage you to grow closer to God and recognize that He wins. Let this message be a reminder to you of His love for you and the plan that He has for your life. You guys enjoying the book so far? Again, I'm learning a ton, growing right alongside with you. That being said, I told you some fears. I think we've had a solid start to the book. Week one, I really focused on, again, some ground rules for us as a church as we kind of step into a genre that we don't look at very often. It's this apocalyptic genre. And so we looked at, again, we're going to focus, my promise as pastor is we're going to focus in their town first. But as we read the text in their town, sometimes we struggle to interpret it in our town, right? So like this sign behind me, I've seen some of you chuckle. Did anyone get a kick out of this sign, right? Because my commitment to you as preacher is that we're going to be focused on author's intent, Logic and flow, their town before we jump to our town. Like we're committed to not get weird in this series. But if you read this sign, I think it'd be easy to misinterpret, right? Like life, give me a sign. And life says this, you don't matter, give up. Anyone else think that's a depressing sign? Like who would put that there? Well, I don't think that was their intent, right? I think the author's intent was you matter, don't give up. And that's my fear for revelation, right? Like, we're just starting, but there's this sense of, like, what's, what's happening? What are they trying to say? What's this all about? Guys, God gave us this letter, and my promise to you in week one is he told us in chapter one, verse three, if you read and do, you will be what? Blessed. But again, the blessing comes from reading the text, understanding it in their town before we jump to our town, but living it out in our town, living out the gospel in our town. And so I think we've had a solid start. Week one, we said we're going to focus on their town. Week two, Daisy did a great job saying we're going to focus on Jesus. He's the main character. If you didn't hear the sermon last week, you haven't read the text, we're going to be in chapter one seven more times in a row. So again, go back and read that vision of Jesus because for the next seven sermons, we're going to reference a part of that sermon last week, a part of that text of who is Jesus. Why? Because he is king, he reigns, and he wins. Somebody say amen. amen. So apocalyptic literature, which is what the word revelation means. It means the unveiling. It means to look at life today in light of the unforeseen reality of the future, which is he wins. Can you all just take a deep breath? Like we stress over stuff and it's like, did we forget that Jesus already won? He wins in the future. He's winning right now. And he already won in the past, in the first garden, in the future garden. And so apocalyptic says simply this, we get to see what is the unseen reality in the future. We also get to see the unseen reality of the present. That's what apocalyptic means that we would have an unveiling, that we would see the truth of who God is and what he is up to. Now, part of what makes this book so difficult is there's three genres. So there's revelation and apocalyptic as one genre, but it's also an epistle. It's a letter. And so it's a letter specifically. In fact, the next seven weeks, we're going to look at the least apocalyptic part of the text. It's these seven letters in a row. Now, I see phones already coming out. The slides are online. You can download them or you're welcome to take pictures, whatever works best for you. But there's a pattern to these next seven letters in a row. And guess how many ideas there are in every one of them? What do you think? Seven, right? Numbers matter. It's a number of complete. It's another of wholeness. And so in this context, these are seven real churches. With these seven real churches, these are real situations, real events that are being addressed. But I do think that they address all of us as a church. We as a church will get a chance to learn from these seven churches. So it is an epistle. Now, of course, that's what we're going to see. It's going to start with to the church. The second pattern we're going to see every week for the next seven weeks is thus says he. It's a prophetic letter. That these seven specific letters are not just the genre of apocalyptic, not just the genre of epistle, but it's also the genre of prophecy. 
The prophet comes to afflict the comforted and to comfort the afflicted. That's what the prophet does. The prophet is the voice of God. In this context, the prophet is Jesus. So that's who we're listening to. For seven weeks, we're going to listen to Jesus. Thus says he, and that's what we're going to call back to chapter one, seven times in a row, an attribute that we saw last week that John's going to highlight for us. The third thing we're going to see every week is I know your attributes and your actions. Church, we're going to get encouraged. Anyone want to get encouraged today? Right? Like, guys, God's working to you. Now, if there's anything in your life that's worthy of encouragement, can we just stop and remember that's because of God? That's called grace. It's his work to you, but also through you. So he's going to encourage most of these churches. Hey, here's what I see God doing to you. That's rad. Let's be encouraged. We could also just want to stop at number three, because then we could be like, yay, we're good. Here's the problem. In the Bible, what do we learn? We are not good. Only God is good. Amen? So he encourages us at number three, then at number four, every time he's going to say, but man, now my kids will have these conversations, right? And they'll apologize. They'll say, well, dad, I'm so sorry, but he did it, right? And I don't know about you, but anytime we say the word, but doesn't it kind of feel like we take away what came before it? So you're not sorry. You just don't want to be in trouble. That's what you're really saying. And so again, I want you to see this. God's doing a work in number three, but man shows up every time. That again, we live in this world that we are fallen, that we are broken, that we are sinners saved by grace and saints who struggle with sin. And so we're going to see that reality seven weeks in a row, which means the fifth step every week in a row is going to be that we repent. Who here loves to repent? Anybody? Like church, we got to be people that love to repent. Repentance is not a word to be afraid of. It's kind of every morning we wake up, every morning we say, God, I'm sorry for settling for lesser joys. Repentance is getting off the throne of your heart that we actually use this stool as a metaphor for vintage that everyone else has a metaphorical throne in our heart. And so repentance is saying, God, I, I took your seat. I'm gonna get off the throne of my heart. Lord, I'm sorry. And so we're gonna get a chance to repent. So if you don't like repentance, you might wanna take the next six weeks off from vintage, right? Like uh, maybe the next eternal Sunday's off because that's what we're gonna talk about. What does it mean for us to repent to get off the throne of your heart? God loves us. I grew up in a culture that said, what does God want from me? I think the real question is, what does God want for me? That's a different mentality. God wants for you to get off the throne of your heart. In fact, God loves you so much that he calls you to repent. So we're gonna see that over and over and over again. And finally, he says, you who have ears to hear, let him hear. That's a spirit work. He, he's illuminating the text to us. We saw that through our gospel study, right? That Jesus would say things. He's like, you're not gonna understand yet. Then the spirit will come. He will make it clear to you. That's in every one of these letters. He has ears to hear, let him hear. And then we're gonna end every week for the next seven weeks. You know what we're gonna end with? We're gonna end with a party. Why? Because you in Christ are more than conquerors. Amen? Amen. Like you win. You win. You know the final score. So are there things we need to repent of? Absolutely, but God. But God, being rich in mercy and abounding in steadfast love, he gave his son for you so that if you'd repent, you would be saved. And so we're going to see this theme seven weeks in a row. I often think our Sunday morning gatherings are like family reunions, that we gather to scatter, and then when we come back, we get this chance to celebrate. I think every worship service on some level should be a party. Why? Because we were dead in our sin, but God makes us alive. We're more than conquerors. So again, read ahead, read chapter two, seven today, 11 next week, then 17, 26, three, five, 12, 21 in chapter three. It's all building to the end of the book, Revelation 21. Let me tell you, God wins. So we have nothing to fear. We don't have to stress. We don't have to worry about the future. We don't have to worry about our present sin. We have to repent over our present sin. But when we get off the throne of our heart, God wins. Wins. And so the question from this point on through the rest of the letter is, will they be faithful? Will they be faithful? 
Because God is. He's going to be faithful. He's going to win. And so the question is, will we then be faithful? Because victory is coming. And these seven weeks are going to lead us right up to Easter. We're going to take a lot of communion leading up to Easter. Because who needs communion twice on Sundays, right? Like every day. So if you don't have your elements, get them. Because we're going to repent today. But we're going to celebrate the promised victory because the blood of the Lamb comes and is victorious. Will we be faithful? So again, as we look at the text, here's my summary statement. Jesus loves the church of Ephesus enough, I think, to tap him on the shoulder. That every one of us at times crawls onto this seat. He loves us enough to tap us on the shoulder and say, Psst, Drew, you're in my seat. Repentance then is getting off the throne of your heart. And so Jesus loves the church of Ephesus. This book is not written to you, it's written to them, but it's for you too. And so again, it's written to Ephesus and he loves them enough to call our attention, to tap us on the shoulder and say, hey, where are the affections for me? Where are the affections? Affections are falling out of us all the time. It's the things that we put on the throne of our heart. Where are your affections? Why? Because our emotions are a tattletale of our heart. And so we, like Ephesus today, must remember, we must repent, and we must be called to get back to doing the things that God has called us to do. Not because he wants it from us, because he wants it for us. So when I say things as your pastor, like, I want you happier tomorrow than you are today, it starts with repentance. It starts with getting off the throne and saying, God, this is your life. This is your will. Help me to faithfully follow and be the bride that you've called us to be. And so as we look at the text, if we have not lost the ethic of love, this was a theme for us in the fall as a church. As a church, we believe that love is a who, it's not a what. It's who sits on the throne of our heart. And so Christians, if we love God, our love of him is going to overflow in every part of our life. The affections that we have for him is going to be shared everywhere that we go. He will sit on the throne of our heart and it will drive all of our actions. It will change and transfer our affections to him and not to us. If you have your Bible, turn to Revelation chapter 2. We're starting in verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write these things, Jesus says. The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Jesus says, I know your works, Ephesus your toil, your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but how you, church, have tested those who call themselves apostle and are not, and you found them to be false. Good job. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. You have not grown weary. Good job. But I have this against you, that you've abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works that you used to do at first. If not, I will come to you and I will remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate, Jesus says. But he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And so, Father God, we come before and we ask you to speak because we want to eat. We want to eat from the tree. We want to be nourished. We want to be satisfied. We want to be happier today in this moment than we were before we walked in. That only happens if we get off the throne of our heart and if you speak. And so, Spirit of God, we pray right now that you would do what you were doing as you inspired John to write these words to the church of Ephesus. Would you do that work in us? Would you tap us on the shoulder? Would you call us to repent? And would we find greater joy because we're faithfully following you? Lord Jesus, we love you. Be present to us and through us today, we pray. And everybody said, amen. Now, as we walk through this book, there's gonna be seven different contexts for these next seven weeks. So here's the context of week one. We're starting with Ephesus. Ephesus was, again, if John was sending this letter from Patmos, Ephesus is the first of the seven churches just on his mail carrier route. It's also probably the most influential church. I think he starts there for a reason. Ephesus was a big deal. 
Like, if you didn't know that, just ask someone Ephesus. There's a lot of city pride. It's like the third largest city in the Roman Empire. Four times Ephesus won, like, city of the year, right? They had their plaques probably hanging on their walls, right? Like, it's a big deal. They didn't host the Olympics. That was Athens, but they host the Panionian Games. Like, these guys were a big deal. They had a 24,000-seat auditorium in an amphitheater. These guys were the real deal. It was this flourishing city of communication. There was a large harbor. There were roads. There were all these things that made Ephesus like the place to be. Life and commerce was flourishing in Ephesus. Worship was flourishing in Ephesus. When I worship, I don't mean worship of Jesus. I mean just worship, ascribing value. Remember, that's what the word worship means, to send value. There was the worship of the Roman cult, There was also the worship of of pagan gods, specifically Artemis, one of the seven wonders of the world. It was where her temple was. That that was one of the worships. They would make these little statues of Artemis and of other demigods, of these man-made gods, even the emperor himself. If you remember Domitian, he actually built on Main Street, think Elrod Hills Boulevard. At the end of Main Street, Domitian actually built a statue to his younger brother Titus on Main Street. Why? Because Titus besieged and demolished Jerusalem. And so in this culture, you've got this powerful economy, this powerful culture of worship of Artemis and the temple of Sebastoi, which again is what Domitian created. And in that culture is where the church rose up. It was in that culture where there was compromise and and worship and all these things. That's when this church of Jesus Christ, it had moved from the center hub of Jerusalem and now it's in Ephesus. That's what we see going on in the first century of the church. In fact, we know some of their leaders. It was Paul who helped plant the church. It's one of the places he stayed longer than anywhere else. Paul and Timothy. It was Priscilla and Aquila. It was men and women, couples, families, living on mission in this world of compromise, and they were sharing the gospel. It started probably in a living room, in a home, and they shared with their neighbors, and they shared with their neighbors. Now, again, there was a huge cost to being a disciple in Ephesus. In fact, one commentator said it this way, discipleship and evangelism that costs nothing is also worth nothing. Somebody say, ouch. Because I think in our culture, this is hard for us to understand. If you wanted to be a Christian in Ephesus, specifically throughout the book of Revelation, discipleship that costs nothing might also be worth nothing. There was a cost to these early Christians. Why? Because as they repented and got thrown of their heart, who started to not like them? Well, the empire It started to cost them their livelihood, their family, their relationship, their jobs. They were messing with commerce. So as Paul is planting the church and the church is growing and growing and growing, you know what went down? What went down was all the sale of like idol worship. All those little statues that made part of their economy, this big budding growth engine for the Roman Empire. At this point now, people are buying less. Why? Because that doesn't sit on the throne of their hearts. They've repented. They've become Christians. And so the Roman Empire is being upset by the Christian reality of the kingdom of God. And so they're living in this tension right now, and it is one that I think on some level it's hard for us to understand, but on another level it's not. This is communitas, a common master and a common mission. It's causing the church to grow, but it's upsetting their reality. Now, do we deal with something similar in our day and age? Absolutely. Way too often we say, well, where are you from? Well, I'm from California. I live in the United States of America. We instantly go to, we're part of an empire. Church, where is our residency? The kingdom. Like, that's it. We happen to live here as sojourners, but again, if you feel this tension between living in the kingdom of God while being a resident of the empire, that's what it means to be a Christian in first century. That's what it means to be a Christian in the 21st century. This place is not our home, and yet this place is calling for our allegiance. Now, for them, it was gonna cost them their lives. 
It was literally gonna say, if, if I repent, if I get off the throne of my heart, if I fight for my joy in Ephesus, the odds are high that I will die, but it's also worth it. And so that's the context as we pick up this letter. Let's keep reading. He says this, to the angel of the church in Ephesus. Now, again, if you read that, you might be like, I'm so confused. Is there an angel over every church? That's literally what the Jews believed. If you go back in the Old Testament, you'll see this. You'll see it in Psalm 82, Deuteronomy 32, verse 8. You'll see this reference to sons of God. That's called angels, that they actually believed that there was some sort of a guardian angel over every church. And so pay attention because this created some issues for the early church. Paul actually writes to the church in Colossae chapter two, verse 18, and he says this, stop worshiping angels. Why? Because angels aren't worthy of ascribing value to. Who do the angels worship? Worship him. His name is Jesus. So pay attention. There was issues in the early church. There's issues for us today. Why? Because we put all sorts of things on the throne of our heart other than Jesus even the beings that he created like angels. And so I think it's clear as we read these letters, he's writing to an angel, but he's really writing through an angel. He's writing this message to the angel of the church, but it's for the spiritual leaders, the physical leaders, the earthly and the heavenly leaders. And here's what he says, to the angel of the church, write. That word write, you can see hundreds of times in the Old Testament. I just put a couple references up there for you to look up later. Now remember, I told you guys, if we're gonna do Revelation, you're gonna have a lot of homework. Are you guys studying outside of today? I hope so, right? Go to Life Group, have these conversations, but you'll go back to Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Amos, Micah, Zechariah, and you're gonna see this phrase, write these things. It's again, it's not the prophet that we worship. Way too often we worship prophets, even in our day and age today. We worship people that are the voice piece of God. What matters is the voice of God. That's what matters. Not the person that's delivering the message. It's part of why I've told you guys my definition of a pastor, because I think we've created in the Church of America, pastor worship. Pastors are professional sinners saved by grace. You're a normal sinner saved by grace. What's the difference between you and me? I went to seminary and I had more school debt than you, maybe, right? Like, that's the difference. We're both sinners saved by grace. And so don't miss this. Who's the prophet in Revelation to the seven churches? This is pretty fun. It's not Paul. It's not John. Who's the prophet? To write the words of him, Jesus. He's the prophet, the perfect prophet. Write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand. Write the words of him who walks among the seven golden lampstands. What do the lampstands represent? Do you remember? The churches. Jesus is a present God. Last week, we talked about how he's worthy of fear. He causes us to tremble. But the reality is he comes near to us. He walks with us in the garden with Adam and Eve. What did Jesus, the Father, the Son, the Spirit, three in one, what did God do with his people? He walked with them. He journeyed with them. We don't have to be afraid of God. He made a way. And today, Jesus has torn the dividing wall. He's giving us a highlight of Genesis 3.8. Guys, the world started in a garden and it's gonna end in a garden. The Father in chapter 1, verse 8, the Son in chapter 1, verse 16, and today the Spirit in chapter 2, verse 7. He walks with us. He talks with us. He's with you right now. It's why we encourage you to, to make, make this sticker a part of your daily rhythm. It's just a prayer. Every morning I wake up and I just say, God, what are you inviting me into today? If you don't have this sticker, I'd encourage you to grab one of the Connect card. They're, they're free. That's a way for us to remember that he walks with us, that he talks to us. The question is, are we listening? And the answer often is, no, I, I got other things to do, Jesus. He's sitting here talking to us, walking with us, and that's the invitation. So that's what we're seeing. This is the author of the church and the author of the message to the church, Ecclesia, the church he's talking to. He's walking, talking. What does he say? Verse two, he says, I know your works. I know is a reference to chapter one, verse 14. I have eyes that can see everything. How many of you guys ever try to hide things from Jesus, right? You don't really tell your life group the whole truth and nothing but the truth. 
Jesus says, I know. I already know what's going on in your head. I already know what's going on in your heart. Stop faking it till you make it because you're never going to make it. It's why I made a way because there was no other way. Amen? He says, I know these things. What are you doing? Stop wasting your life. I know what's going on in your heart. I know all things, and I know your works. Now, again, here's one of my fears. Way too often, we think that our works are pretty dang good. That's why we celebrate average grace in the Church of America, but the gospel says it's amazing grace. Grace will never be amazing until we start to recognize that our works apart from Christ are worthless. So that's what we see in the text. It just says, I know your works, and to be honest, you're doing okay. You're doing okay. In fact, he goes on now. He says seven things that he says, Church of Ephesus, you're doing okay. You've been toiling. You've been persevering. You've been working hard. You've been patiently enduring. You've not borne witness with those who are evil. You've tested false prophets, which again, we must pay attention, church, because they exist in our day too. You've tested false prophets against the word of God and you've rejected their false truths and half-truths. You've rejected that good job. He goes, I know you are enduring patiently. I know you're bearing up for my namesake. And by the way, it's gonna cost you your life, but you have not grown weary. Somebody say amen. I want God to say that about our church, right? Church, I don't wanna grow weary. Do we ever get weary as Christians where our residency is in heaven, but we live here in the empire? I do. It is hard. In fact, Christian, if you at times don't grow weary, maybe you're not living in the kingdom and you're celebrating the empire. That's the truth of the church of Ephesus. He says, you haven't grown weary. You've done good. You've been faithful at a great cost. Paul warned this church in Acts chapter 20, there's gonna come a day and age where people are gonna tickle your ears and try to distract you from the truth of God. Do not settle for lesser joys. So on one level, I'm like, can we just stop the letter there? Because this is encouraging. (laughs) This is great. God wins and we're not awful, but God loves us enough to tap us on the shoulder. God wants something for us. He wants to have complete joy, full joy. And here's what he says then in verse four, but I have this against you church that you've abandoned the love that you had at first. Somebody say, ouch, like this is a big deal. This is a big deal. When he says, I have this against you, we at Vintage use this picture of a disciple. A disciple is someone that lives R cube. What's the R stand for? Relationships. Three great relationships. R1 is a deepening with God. R2 is a life-changing one with each other, humbly broken, transparent. And R3 is an engaging relationship with the yet to believe. This is what a disciple is. We think of this as holistic. In fact, really, if we think about a disciple, we have a tendency, every one of us, to kind of camp out in one of those circles. We need to fight to come back to the center. If all we care about is R1, I think we can become a scholar. We can have a lot of head knowledge, but no heart knowledge. If all we do is R1 and R2, I think we can kind of create a holy huddle. We got all the right answers and we have our Bible studies, but we don't care about the lost. And yet Jesus cares about the lost. So Ephesus right now, I think, is settling for an R1 exclusive focus relationship, maybe an R1 and 2, where they recognize there's going to come a cost if I fight for my joy in Jesus. If I speak the truth, even in love, I'm going to die. Now, again, if R cubed is good, we might as well just keep making more metaphors, right? So I got H cubed for you this morning, okay? So here's H cubed your head, your heart and your hands. When we read this verse four, chapter two, verse four, here's what I think Paul's saying. But I have this against you that you've abandoned the love that you had at first. Now, again, we need to parse. What does he mean by that? I think what he's saying is, man, you guys have fought hard for good head faith. Dallas Willard says it this way, though, the longest 12 to 18 inch journey of your life and how long your neck is, is between your head and your heart. But your affections in your heart is showing me something, Jesus says then maybe you actually have knocked me off the throne of your heart. Maybe you've started to share the seat with me. We call this one-cheek faith, right? 
Ephesus has this issue, so do we. It can't just be head knowledge. It's got to be heart knowledge. It can't just be head or heart or hands. And here's what I think we're getting at. In chapter one, chapter two, verse four, we have to ask the question, what does he say? Is he saying that they've abandoned Jesus? Does anybody know what this is right here? What's this, Buckner? It's my wedding ring, right? What does this mean? This means that on July, oh dear, July 31st, 2004, my wife and I got married. That's what this means. This was a commitment that we made to each other. Our first Valentine's Day was in 2002. In 2002, at our first Valentine's Day, you know what I did? I bought flowers, way too expensive, by the way. Awful, I was a poor college student, and I bought, I think they were like 50 bucks. It was crazy. And I bought these flowers, went to a park at La Mirada Regional Park, because I couldn't afford flowers and lunch or dinner, right? So I think I made sandwiches. Maybe it was Top Ramen, I don't know. But I, I made this picnic, and we went to the park, and that's what we did for our first Valentine's Day. I'll never forget, it was wonderful. Guess what we did for our second Valentine's Day? Nothing. <laughs> what about our third and fourth and fifth and sixth, and what are we up to now, almost 20? What have we done for the last 20 Valentine's Days? Nothing. Now, church, pay attention. And husbands, this is a great time for you right now to be planning next year's Valentine's Day. Because, again, I have issues with Hallmark, right? And so for me, I, again, I don't think you have to prove your love by buying flowers. I discovered something. You can get really cheap flowers the next day behind the floral shop. I'm just saying, right? And so here's what I discovered. And again, I love that God allows me the opportunity. You have to remember, when we preach the sermons here, we preach it to ourselves first. I need this. Again, it's not, are Jen and I still married even though we haven't done Valentine's Day the last 20 some odd years? Yeah, the ring's not come off. When he says that you've abandoned your first love, I don't think he's saying that you knocked off the throne of your heart and you're like, this is my seat and you're taking it away. I don't think that's his intent. Now, do we see that in the Old Testament? Absolutely, you've seen Hosea and Gomer? There is a way, we see the metaphor of marriage used over and over again. It's in Revelation. We're gonna throw a big old wedding party at the end of this study. We're gonna have wedding cake and everything, why? Because the bridegroom is gonna come back and take his bride and present him to the Father, pure and spotless and without blemish, and it's gonna be a party, amen? That's what heaven is. Heaven is Jesus taking his bride back into the garden to be with the Father forever. That's what heaven is. And so again, please don't miss this. Now that being said, when he says this about Ephesus, I don't think Ephesus took off their ring and threw it away. I think what he's saying is, hey, why don't you celebrate Valentine's Day? Why don't you do that? And if it's because of Hallmark, that's okay because you can give more to church if you spend less on flowers. You know what I'm saying? Like, so, so pay attention. But what he's saying is what's the why behind the what? The what is Valentine's Day. What's the why? Now again, what specifically is he talking about? Because here's what Jeremiah 2 and Ezekiel 16 says. Jeremiah 2 and Ezekiel 16 simply says this, unless you stoke the fire, the fire will go dead. And so husbands, please hear me. I'm not giving you an, an excuse to never do Valentine's Day. Just do it the next day. It's cheaper and it's less crowded. Because I did discover something. Because again, I knew that I was going to repent to my wife over Valentine's Day as I was prepping the sermon a couple weeks ago. So I tried to make a reservation this year for Valentine's Day so I could tell you at church the next week. By the way, bad to make reservations if it's in the name of telling your church about it. It's got to be about her, not about you. You get what I'm saying? Here's what I discovered two weeks ago. Y'all make reservations forever out for Valentine's Day, and it's wrong. I couldn't find one restaurant to go to, so Chick-fil-A it was, right? And so part of this is recognizing not the what, but the why. The heart behind the what. The depth of your why determines the length of your what. So what exactly is he saying that you've left your, that you've left your first love? I don't think it's that you no longer worship Jesus. Here's what I think it is. He says, I want you to go back 
to what you started with. In the church of Ephesus, you know how they started? Like a husband and wife and a pastor in a living room. And how did the church grow? They told their neighbors about how awesome Jesus was. That's how the church grew. I think when he says that you've left your first love, I think his first love is evangelism on some level. That lost people matter most. It's how we planted this church. That we believe that people that don't know Jesus, that if they die apart from him, if they die sitting on the throne of their heart, that they're gonna be in hell apart from Jesus. And if we love God and if we love people, I don't want them to die apart from Jesus, amen? And I recognize who I am as a follower of Christ. And so here's the point. You know what you do as humans? You just share what you care about. That's what you do. In fact, it was a few years ago, Vintage Grace was only one or two years old and there was a group I partnered with at a national level and they said, Drew, we love hearing the stories of what God's doing at Vintage Grace. Will you write us an article about evangelism? Will you help the, the, the church at the national level? Would you help us understand how we can experience more evangelism at our churches? And I said, I'd love to write that article. That sounds so fun. So I wrote an article on evangelism. It wasn't the article they expected. You know why? Because I don't tell people to evangelize more. But this is important. What I talk to people about, what we've done at Vintage, is I say, love God more. Follow Jesus. If there's more joy in Jesus, what do you naturally do with Jesus? You talk about him. You introduce your friends to him. You share what you care about. Here's the problem with the Church of America. We love the warriors more than we love Jesus, amen? One of us confessed with me, that's my confession. Like these, I, Usher's got nothing on me. These are my confessions, right? Like we don't evangelize because we don't love God. That's why we don't evangelize. So I wrote a whole article about, hey, as a pastor, I don't try to motivate my church to evangelize. I try to motivate my church to follow Jesus. And if they follow Jesus, they discover there's more joy in Jesus. And when there's more joy in Jesus, what do we do? We tell people about Jesus because Jesus changes everything, amen? Now don't miss this. They didn't publish my article. <laughs> It doesn't fit in the Church of America box, and I'm okay with that. Here's the problem. It's from the Bible. And so, church, we got to pay attention. So I think when Paul says, I'm sorry, when John says to the Church of Ephesus, what Paul modeled at the Church of Ephesus is, I have this against you. You've abandoned the love you had at first. You don't tell anybody about how awesome Jesus is. Why? Because on some level, you've forgotten. You've forgotten how life-changing it is to just faithfully follow Jesus. And that doesn't have to manifest itself in a Valentine's Day dinner, but it does have to manifest itself in the way in which you share what you care about, unless, of course, you don't actually care about Jesus. Somebody say, ouch. That's what he says in verse 4. I have this against you. Your head knowledge is strong. Your, your, your head knowledge is great, but your heart, and how is your heart showing that you don't care? Well, look at your hands. You're sitting on them. Not only are you sitting on the throne of your own heart, you're sitting on your hands. And Jesus says, I gave you hands to go give away the gospel because it cost you how much? Nothing. No, the wages of sin was death, but God, by the grace of God, redeemed us, reclaimed us, and restored us from our wretchedness to make us sons. That's a story worth sharing, amen? That's what evangelism is. It's just sharing how amazing Jesus is. It's that vitality of Valentine's Day. It's remembering that Jesus is worth it. The text goes on and it says this, remember therefore from where you have fallen. Go back and repent to your wife and say, hey babe, I need to pursue you more. Jesus says, I'm right here. I'm the only one worthy of pursuit. That's Jesus. 
And yet all of us as his followers need to pursue him more. So remember how far we've fallen. Remember the good old days. And let's go back to that because that's the only truth of the gospel. And so we must repent and go back and do the works that we used to do at first, which I think is evangelism. We must go back to sharing. We must ask the question, if we're not evangelizing, why aren't we? What is the why behind that what? Because he goes on and he says this, the good news of Jesus is simply this. He's coming back, amen? When he comes back, for those of us who love Jesus, is that gonna be a good day? It's gonna be a great day. Like There is no better day when he comes back. But for those who haven't repented, for those who sit on the throne of their own hearts, is that a good day? No, no, that's a tragic day. That's an eternally tragic day where they are gonna miss the joy of Jesus, not just for today, but for an eternity of tomorrow. Don't miss this, Revelation 2, 16, 3, 3, and 3, 20. Jesus is coming back, so church, we must repent. We must get off the throne of our heart, we must tell people about it, why? Because if not, I will come to you and I will remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Now that's a metaphor going all the way back to the, the temple of God that all of these Jews would have recognized that, again, this was a light that Jesus gave you. He saved you to send you into the world. If you're not living as sent ones, then again, the question is, are we actually saved ones? So here's what Jesus says, because we don't believe vintage, you can lose your salvation. What we do believe is that if you never had it, then there's a problem. So the ring is still on, but man, we better repent and start sharing about the joy of Jesus. Amen? He says, if you don't, there's a problem. It's revealing a heart condition. And that heart condition is an issue because we're saved because of the heart transplant from G. So if not, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Now, again, I think there's all sorts of repentance we need to do, church. Every second of our life, it feels like there's this period. It's like, oh, what did I do this time? Now, again, I'm not afraid of that. God's not mad at me. He just wants more for me. He doesn't want me to settle for lesser joys. In fact, we need to repent over our one issues. We need to repent over our two. How will the world know that we're his disciples? By the way, that we what? Love, that's what we saw in John 13. We need to repent over the way that we disagree. Church, I don't even need us to agree more on certain things. I need us to learn how to disagree better. That's what we see in the text. We see this picture of if not, if you don't go back to he is Lord and he is king, then everything else starts to fall apart. The text goes on. It says this in verse six. It's kind of like this compliment sandwich. There's this ouch right in the middle, but he starts with these seven great things and he ends with a great thing too in verse six. He says this, yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans. That's good news. Who are the Nicolaitans? We're gonna talk a lot about them right now. We can talk more about it in life group. We're gonna talk a lot more the next few weeks. But the Nicolaitans were these people that came in. They really preached a watered-down gospel. That's who they were. They preached a watered-down gospel of compromise between the kingdom and the empire. Of, you know what? Hey, it doesn't really matter what you believe. You've got freedom in Christ. Do we have freedom in Christ? Absolutely, amen. But because he loves us, does he want us to settle for lesser joys? No, Paul deals with this in Romans. Should we just sin more because grace could abound? No, he says, never. Why? Because it's not what God wants for us. We see this in 1 Corinthians 6 and in chapter 8. So I think the Nicolaitans were preaching this watered-down gospel that said, compromise, compromise, compromise. Have you noticed that's true in our culture today too? It's everywhere, right? Tolerant, tolerant, tolerant. Except for you Jesus followers, we're intolerant of you, Right? Like, don't miss this. This was true in the first century. We must pay attention, and we can't parse all these verses right now, but three things that the Nicolaitans highlighted. The first one was their focus on allegiance to the empire. That is kind of the big idea of Romans. Be faithful in the midst of compromise to the empire. It's Revelation 13, 1 through 18. Nicolaitans also, in chapter 2, verses 14 and 20, said, compromise your food. Compromise the way that you live in the empire. Compromise your sexuality. Chapter 2, chapter 9, chapter 14, 17, 18, and 19. You think that's a big deal? Yeah. 
And it's true in our day and age today, we must fight for our joy. We must let the word of God be that which actually saturates our hearts. And yet we do, we live in a world, and maybe you're noticing where it feels like compromise is the major theme. May it never be so with the church. But we recognize that God created us, not we created him. We were made in his image, not the other way around. And he says, guys, you're doing good. You're not compromising. The problem is you're not sharing the joy of Jesus with other people. And so how does he end verse seven? Oh, sorry, because God hates compromise. Theology, we have to fight for the world. Now, I worry about this. Now, I don't worry about it for these guys, but I worry about it for us. If we say, man, we're not gonna compromise. We're gonna fight with the world. Church, as Christians, do we ever fight with the world? No, we fight what? For the world. That's what John tells us in his gospel. We fight for the world. Our theology must match our tone and our timing, and that's what leads to love. It's not a compromise of theology, but it must match our tone and our timing. Here's how he ends in verse seven. He says this, he who has an ear, let him hear. Why? Because many people don't want to hear this message. When compromise is the theme of the day in Revelation chapter two, and I think it's partly the theme of the day today, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat the tree of life, which is the paradise of God. Is anybody hungry, amen? amen. Jesus offers you joy. He offers you joy everlasting. He offered it to you in the garden, and metaphorically, every one of us knocked him off the throne of our heart. But the book started in the garden, it's gonna end in a garden. Jesus is coming back, he will redeem and he will reclaim and he will take us back. Genesis three is where the book starts, Genesis 22 is where it ends, and what we see throughout the book, the main theme and narrative is Jesus wins. He's already won in the first garden, he's gonna win in the future garden, and he's winning right now. Now how does he win? It's different than we'd expect. Does he come as a lion? Absolutely, but how does John see him in a couple chapters? As a lamb. I wanna invite you right now, just hold your elements. We're not taking them yet, just hold them. I just want you to hold them for a little bit because we so often think, well, I'm gonna raise up and I'm gonna fight and I'm gonna do this. Pay attention to how Jesus fought. He fought by laying down his life. He fought by laying down his life as the lion and the lamb. And does the lamb defeat the dragon? Yes. Does the lamb defeat the beast? Yes. But church, we're followers of the lamb. Conquering simply means this, continued faithfulness in a world of compromise. Here's what I love. How many of us are gonna be always faithful in a world of compromise? I'm not. I'm not. I'll be quick on a Sunday when everyone's around and be like, I'm in. And then when life comes at us, what do we do? Well, we forget Valentine's Day. We don't think it's important. We start to just share the throne of our heart with somebody else. And so church, may we be on guard because I think what he says to Ephesus applies to us. There's all sorts of implications for us today. And as we hold these elements, I'm going to give you three things. Then we're going to have a moment of repentance because church, who needs to repent today? I do. We do together, corporately and personally. Here's the first implication. Let's focus on our head for a moment. This is going to be more next week than this week, but I don't want to miss this moment. I want to take a little bit of time to just pre-teach because we're stepping into a world of relativism. I told you we're learning a lot from our friends across the pond. We're learning a lot from what God's doing in the Church of England, because on some level, just the way the world has worked, and what we're seeing is a complete lack of absolute truth. Does thinking matter? Absolutely. A.W. Tozer says this way, the most important thing about you is what you think about when you think about God. That drives everything else. Now, Ephesus is focused more on heart, but I don't want to miss this reality that we're in a world right now of what scholars are saying is moralistic therapeutic deism is alive and well. Does that sound intense to anybody else? You're like, Drew, just tell me what that means. I'm glad to, because I read it from somebody else. Three things that we're seeing. Now, these ideas are coming specifically from an article that is written about the youth of our world today. In fact, this article is, if I can find my notes here, here we go. 
This is an article called Almost Christian. It was written in 2010 about the faith of our teens, which is telling us something for the future church of America. It was a national study on youth and religion from 2001 to 2015. And it's furthered my conviction that we must be people that think rightly so that we would live rightly. But here's three things that this study came up with. Now again, oh, I changed, okay. God is supposed to be lowercase because this is the way we've created God. Okay, so I want you to notice this. This is not God, the Father, the Son, the Spirit, three in one. This is what we've done to God. We've made him in our image, not the other way around. Three things this study came back with. God is now a benevolent, nice God, and he just wants me to be a nice person. And here's the good news. Because I'm nicer than everybody else by my own standards, I'm good with God, right? And so that's what the youth of our world are now believing and seeing. God is a benevolent, nice, and he just wants me to be nice. Number two, it's really about my dreams, my goals, my inner peace, and my passion. Why? Because we've made God in our image, and who sits on the throne of our image? I do. So God actually exists to serve me. Again, this is not the God of the Bible. This is the God of the study of our youth. Number three, God then exists for me to find my center, and we've made God to be a vending machine. If I just type this in, then this will pop out and I'll get what I want. This is what leads. Have you ever noticed at the end of every Super Bowl, at the end of every Oscars, every Emmys, what does everyone say? I thank God. Who is God? Well, God is the one that serves me that made me get this award. God is the one that made me successful because I am God, because I said I'm throwing in my heart. It's what's led to Super Bowl shout outs. I think it's also what leads to crises cryouts. God gets some of the credit when we win the award, but he gets all the blame when my kid gets cancer. And we cry out to God and we're like, God, why'd you do this to me? Wait a second, I thought God worked for you. That's the truth of what we're seeing in this world. And you know that this is a young person writing because the word ish is in the article. They call this now that we live in a Christian-ish society. Guys, it'd be better for us if we lived in a fully post-Christian society than if we lived in a Christian-ish society. Because in a Christian-ish society, we're blending the kingdom and the empire and we're straddling both fences. And again, there is no allegiance to the king, amen? Now again, we need to be careful because I think that this is true. This Christian-ish society today is far from the kingdom and we're seeing its effect today. And church, every single one of these letters will call us to repent. It'll call us to repent over our bad thinking that we've not let God speak for himself and say, God, what do you want for your kingdom? We've made him in our image. The second thing we need to repent of today is not just our head, but also our heart. This is Ephesus. This is that Ephesus would say, no, I'm thinking rightly. I'm doing it right. Ephesus has to repent that they're not telling anybody about the joy of Jesus and the love of Jesus. That's what Ephesus needs to repent of. They've got the good theology. The problem is their tone and their timing stinks. It's non-existent. They're not sharing what they care about. They're vigilant for truth, but they're not actually practicing the ethic of love. They're not in relationship with people that are broken. They just tell people that they're broken. Now it's easy to say they, but we probably should be saying we. We Ephesus, we vintage. I don't know where we can relate to this, but where have we lost the ethic of love? Where are the affections overflowing out of our life to the yet to believe? Where's our posture with the yet to believe? Like, it was so fun. I got to go to a, I've now started a new missionary journey. It's called eight-year-old softball, right? And if you remember, how did we start Vintage Grace? Well, we started in a living room. We started releasing everyday missionaries to go coach baseball and softball and go to CrossFit. Some of y'all went to CrossFit. I did CrossFit, right? Like, that's how the church started at Vintage. And on some level, that's how the church started Ephesus. It started with everyday missionaries being released to go share about the joy of Jesus. Guys, why have we stopped? I'm not saying we've stopped. I don't know your personal evangelism life. I don't know. But have we stopped? Because Ephesus has stopped. 
Have we lost our posture with the yet to believe? Every single one of us has a relationship with those who are looking for their joy. At our gyms, on our softball teams, have we recognized that they're all looking for joy and happiness and have we introduced them to Jesus yet? Our theology matters, but our tone and timing, and, and here's something I've wrestled with this week. Again, I don't call it PQ because that's offensive and you'll forget it, but patience, perseverance, and presence. Church, we need to be patient with people. We need to answer questions for people that aren't asking them. We just need to be present with them. Now, we need to persevere. We need to not compromise. We need to start, stop, stop looking like the world. We have to look like the kingdom. But over time, they're going to say, this empire is not making me happy, but something about you feels happier than me. And your marriage is still broken. And your kids still have issues. And you don't have kids. And you're still happy. You don't have a husband. And you're still happy. Single women need other single women that are happy in Jesus so they can know where their real joy is. It will not be in a man, I promise. We need parents that, that have children that live as spiritual parents to other people that weren't able to have parents. We need to be present. We need to have a posture and a heart of just being with people with no agenda. Is there an agenda? Yeah, I want you happier tomorrow than you are today. That's my agenda. And that's only gonna happen if you meet Jesus. But I'm not gonna shove Jesus on you because you're not ready for Jesus yet. He's ready for you, by the way, whenever you want. That's the conversation we have. And we have it at the gym. And we have it in our neighborhood. We have it at work when God opens the door because as a church, we are people that wake up every day and we say, God, what are you inviting us into? We set our alarms for 9.38 so that we can pray and watch and step. And you know what I've discovered in my life? There's almost a step every single day when I live as a missionary, every day. Because there's always someone looking to be happier tomorrow than they are today. But when I meet them, I don't come and say, oh man, I got all the answers. But what I do say is, hey man, I'm a beggar that's found food. I'm a beggar that was starving, looking for joy in all the wrong places, but I met Jesus. And let's be honest, did the beggars create the food? No. Did the beggars even find the food? No, it like fell from heaven, right? Like the manna just shows up. We are beggars that have found food and have found faith in Jesus because Jesus found us. That's what the book says. You don't find Jesus, he finds you. But he uses us to introduce people to him. And so again, I think he goes to Ephesus and he comes to Vintage. He says, hey, are your affections overflowing everywhere you go? And are you praying and watching and stepping? I'm pretty confident not one of us is doing that good enough. Is that true? I I'm not. I'm with you in that journey. I don't share that to beat you up. I share that because there's people that need Jesus and they're going to see him in your marriage, in your brokenness, and in your children and in their brokenness. So may we people that pray and watch and step and may we repent when we're not because we're missing out on the glory of God. Here's a third thing to repent of, church, your hands. See, sins of commission are actions. Sins of omissions are non-actions. Jesus tells us he saved us to send us. Desperate, dependent disciple makers, sinners that have found the joy of Jesus and invite other people to him. And so here's what he tells Ephesus. He says, Ephesus, you've lost your first love. How do I know that? Because you're not telling anybody about how awesome Jesus is. Because you're not spending your time, your treasure, your talent on what matters most. You're settling for lesser joys. And so he tells Ephesus, and the same thing that I want to tell us right now, he tells us to repent. So I want to just encourage you to grab your elements. And is repentance something to be avoided? No, church, we're going to get really good at repentance as a church these next seven weeks. Why? Because he is faithful and just to forgive those of us who confess. So I want to invite you right now to just grab your elements. If you don't love Jesus yet, you don't have to take these elements with us. You can spend time talking to God, but I want to give you a minute right now and just spend some time repenting. Repent of your head, repent of your hands, repent of your heart. If you're like me, you probably need to repent of all three categories. 
But maybe the Spirit will just zoom in on one right now. For Ephesus, it was their heart. It was their lack of affections. It was the fact that, that again, you would not know that Jesus sat on the throne of their hearts by the way that they spent their time, their treasure, their talent. You wouldn't know. They neglected it. And so right now, let's just take a moment and hold these elements and just sit with Jesus and repent. Thank you for joining us for our Revelation series. As you go this week, be comforted by the knowledge that God is in control and He desires nothing more than for you to find full and complete joy in Him. See you next week.